intentions with which we uh, face that year, our desire to reform ourselves, to turn over. We look back over this past year with all of our failures and mistakes, regret, the awful things that we've said and done, and we wish that we could undo um, our past. But uh, all history, including our own, is uh, is unrepeatable. So we raise the same question that this uh, that this poetess raises: Is there a land of beginning again? Is there a place where we can get a fresh and and better start? Is there a way to start out the new year anew? And I want to assure you that uh, that there is. And in order to do so, I want to introduce you to a story that you may not be familiar with. It's an old tale. Uh, it's found in the Old Testament, in the book of Second Kings, chapter 20. Uh, if you would take your Bibles and turn there with me. It's the story of Manasseh, the prodigal king. I want to begin reading with uh, verse 1 of... I'm sorry, it's chapter 21, not chapter 20. Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. Manasseh was the son of uh, Hezekiah, who's one of the few kings in the Old Testament of whom it was said he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was responsible for a revival that swept through the through the entire nation. He uh, delivered Israel from apostasy. Uh, his father Ahaz had been responsible for setting up idols throughout the entire nation and had led uh, the whole nation into, into sin. Hezekiah, under the tutelage of uh, the prophets Isaiah and Micah, was responsible for turning the whole nation away from from destruction. During that time, there were a couple of invasions of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah by Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. Sennacherib uh, destroyed all the little villages around Jerusalem. In Sennacherib's annals, his history of this event, he said, I... I shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. Isaiah uses a little different uh, symbol. He says that Jerusalem was left like a caretaker's hut in the middle of a cucumber field. There was devastation all around. The only thing left was the city of Jerusalem. And uh, you may know the story how God miraculously delivered Jerusalem. Hezekiah took the letter that the general of the Assyrian army had sent demanding surrender, and he laid that out before the Lord, and he asked the Lord for deliverance. And the next morning, when he looked over the top of the wall, there were 186,000 dead Assyrians uh, surrounding the city. A plague had swept through the army in the middle of the night and decimated the army, and Sennacherib went back to Assyria in, in disgrace. It was a wonderful, miraculous deliverance of the, uh, of the nation. Manasseh came to the throne when he was about 10 years of age, or excuse me, when he was 12 years of age. He was a co-regent with his father, Hezekiah, for about 10 years. When he was 22, Hezekiah died, and Manasseh uh, ascended to the throne. He was the sole leader. And as the text goes on to tell us, he did 
evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. The nations here whom, whom God dispossessed were, of course, the Canaanite uh, nations that had been expelled when Joshua conquered the land of, of Canaan. He outdid the Canaanites, this uh, crass, morally corrupt people in the direction that he, that he led the nation. He was utterly, totally corrupt. Now, you have to understand something of the, of the climate in which this evil developed. He had a godly father. He, he lived under the, uh, the tutelage of two of the greatest of Israel's prophets, Isaiah and Micah. And he, while he was not alive at the time of this miraculous deliverance, it was in his history, it was in his background, so he knew of God's faithfulness. And yet, despite all of this, he turned his back on all the truth that he knew. And he did more evil than anyone who had preceded him. He was the most ungodly, corrupt king in all of Israel's history. Now, what follows is a, is a litany of his sins in ascending order of, of deviance and decadence. Let me read it for you, beginning with verse 3. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. These were the groves in which they, they worshipped the Asherah, this uh, goddess of sex and fertility that the Canaanites worshipped. He erected altars for Baal and made Asherah, made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and he served them. The text actually says they worshipped the host of heaven, that is Israel did. He, he led Israel into the worship of, of the stars, the moon, the sun, and he himself dedicated himself to them. He served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, that is, in the priest's court and in the court of the people. And he made his son pass through the fire. He sacrificed his own child. The parallel account in Chronicles suggests that he that he slaughtered all of his sons, more than, than one. And uh, uh, he, he practiced witchcraft and he used divination and he dealt with mediums and spiritists. Actually, he did more than consult the spiritists and the mediums. He, he appointed them, is the word. He appointed them to positions of, of leadership and authority in his, in his cabinet. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then, as if this was not enough, he sent, he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. He took, uh, this pillar that was, that was dedicated to the worship of sex and he put it in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And uh, he worshipped it there. As God said, this is the place where my name was intended to be worshipped. And uh, uh, in verse 8 says, And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers, if only, only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law my, my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, 
and Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. In spite of the word of the prophets, the warnings that were administered to Manasseh and his people, he continued on in his evil course. He corrupted the nation. He seduced the people into uh, the worship of Baal and the Asherah. And as the author of Kings puts it, he did more evil than any other king that had preceded him. As a matter of fact, the author of Kings later in the book suggests, indicates, that the Babylonian captivity of Judah took place solely because of Manasseh's acts. That he was the one that destroyed the nation. Verse 10 reads, The Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites, uh, all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. God warned them through the prophets that judgment would fall. We often are dismayed at the sum total of evil in the world, and we wonder why God doesn't do something about it, because we only see one side of God, that's His tolerance and His wonderful patience and His grace. But there is a line which He draws between His grace and His wrath. And at this point in the history of Israel, God said, enough, I'm going to judge Israel, She's going to, or Judah. She's going to be taken off into captivity. I'm going to take the city of Jerusalem and turn it upside down as you would turn a bowl upside down and wipe it out. In other words, it will be completely depopulated and the people taken off into, 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 uh, into captivity because, he says, they have done evil in my sight. Now, this was the warning that was administered to Manasseh by the prophets, by Isaiah, by Micah, and by others. But note Manasseh's response. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides his sin with which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Josephus, the, uh, the historian who writes shortly after Jesus' time, about 100 A.D., in looking back at this event, said that it was the prophets whose blood uh, flowed down the streets of, of Jerusalem. And it was during this time, according to a long-standing Jewish tradition, that Manasseh slew Isaiah, the prophet. He had him placed in the log, and the log was sawed in two, and, and, he, and he was martyred. He's probably the one that the writer of Hebrews is referring to when he talks about one of those hero, heroes of faith who was sawn asunder, sawn in two. Now here's this remarkably wicked man who reigned for 55 years, went on in his evil, corrupting an entire nation, practicing child sacrifice, worshiping 
the pagan gods, it's, it's significant. Uh, God's name is significant in its, in its absence. Nowhere in all of this pantheon of gods is there any mention of the God of, of Israel. Manasseh borrowed his, his uh, pantheon from the Amorites and from the Canaanites and from the Egyptians and from the Babylonians and the Assyrians and, and all the other surrounding nations, but not one mention of the God of Israel. And yet he continued on in his evil for 55 years. And we say, is, is God minding the store? Doesn't he see? Doesn't he know what's going on? Notice how the, the author completes the story. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin which he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. And Ammon his son became king in his place. He died an old man in his 60s. He got away scot-free. The most wicked, evil man who ever lived. Corrupted an entire nation. Was solely responsible for the Babylonian captivity. Died in what the Old Testament would call good old age. Was buried in his, in his garden. And that's the end of the story. Or is it? There is another record of this story. It's found in Second Chronicles. Would you turn there with me? We start to read through Chronicles and we come across that interminable list of names and we wonder, can anything good out, come out of Chronicles? Indeed, uh, much can. Chronicles is to some extent a parallel uh, to the books of Kings, but it has a different purpose. The author of the book of Kings wrote his book in order to describe the precipitous decline of the nation of Israel and the forces that caused her ruin. So he, the account is necessarily abridged. The author of Chronicles, which was probably Ezra, Ezra the scribe, had a different purpose. His purpose was to prepare Israel for her Messiah. Uh, when I was at Cal, I was in a class that was taught by an Israeli exchange professor. Her name was Sarah Yaffet. And I was the only uh, Christian in the in the class. The rest were uh, were Jews and Israelis. And on one occasion, she asked me in the class, "How does the book of Matthew begin?" And I said, "With a genealogy." And she said, "How does how does the book of Chronicles begin?" And I, I said, "With a long genealogy, ten chapters of genealogy." She said, "What is the purpose of Matthew?" She herself was not a Christian, but she understood well the argument of the books of the New Testament. And I said, to, to, to demonstrate that, that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. She said, yes, that was the purpose of the book. Though she herself would not grant that Jesus is the Messiah. And she said, what is the purpose of the book of, of Chronicles? And it dawned on me at that moment that the two books are remarkably parallel. And the purpose of Chronicles was to prepare Israel for her Messiah. Chronicles is the last book in the Jewish Bible. It's put after the books of Kings in our Bible. That goes all the way back to the Greek version of, of, of the Scriptures. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's the last book. and was probably the last book that was written. And its purpose was to ready Israel for the coming 
of the Lord Jesus. And it portrays the kings in a different light. Tells us things about their lives that the book of Kings does not, uh, does not tell us. Now, uh, in, I'm sorry, did I, did I give you the passage in Chronicles? It's chapter 33. The first ten verses of Second Chronicles 33 are parallel to the passage in Kings with some subtle differences. One I mentioned earlier, the fact that Manasseh's sons were slaughtered, not merely one son. But then in verse 10, uh, the chronicler begins to add some new information. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Just that simple word, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. That's where God always begins. When, when we begin to turn our back on him, he, he, he comes after us. He will not let us go. There, there's an old Turkish proverb that says he has feet of wool but hands of steel. We may not hear him coming, but when he gets his clutches on us, we cannot wriggle free. He will not let us go. He pursues us into our sin and into our guilt, and he will not let us go. He appeals to us on every hand. It's uncanny. You turn on the radio and, and someone is speaking directly to you. Or you pick up a book to read it and some portion of that book speaks directly to your sin. Or some remembered passage of Scripture, something that you memorized years before comes, comes to mind. How well I remember those times when God has spoken to me out of my memory and rebuked me for something that, that's going on in in my life. He just won't let us go. He, he, he becomes what Francis Thompson called the hound of heaven. Tracks us down. He hectors us. He badgers us. He, 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 he continues to remind us of, of, of the truth so that we, we cannot get away from it. A number of years ago, I was sitting out in front of Stanford Chapel on the Stanford University campus, and I uh, was waiting for a student to show up, which is how I spent a large part of my life back then. I learned early on to always carry a book with me to have something to do until they got there. And I, I was sitting on one end of a bench, and I was waiting for the student. There had to be another student sitting on the other end of the bench, and he was reading the Stanford Daily. And we started talking about something that was on the front page of the Daily, and, and I... I we started chatting after a bit about spiritual things, and I could tell he was getting very uneasy. And after a while, I said, I, you know, I'm concerned because you seem to be distressed. Can you tell me what, you know, I, I, I don't want to pressure you. Is there something bothering you? He jumped to his feet, and he said, he said, it's not that. He said, my parents are Presbyterian missionaries in Taiwan. I was raised in a Christian family. He said, I've been running away from God all my life. And everywhere I go... God finds me. And we've all had that experience of being tracked down by God. He will not. He will not let us go. He loves us too much to let us go. He will pursue us to the end. But then, as a part of his redemptive action, he will finally let us go. And even that, you see, is redemptive. That description of God letting people go in Romans 1 is not punitive. It's redemptive. He lets us go because 
sin then begins to master us and we come to the end of ourselves. We see how vile and ugly and unacceptable we really can be. As Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. And if we choose our own way, God will let us go and, and our sin will master us and it will begin to destroy us and the quality of our life begins to disintegrate and we finally come to the end of ourselves like, like the prodigal son. So that's what God did with Manasseh. Let him go. He took his hands off of him. Uh, off of him. And he fell into ruin. Now the, the text doesn't tell us this. This is all history that fascinates me and it probably bores you to death, but Here's what happened. Manasseh, this uh, uh, Sennacherib died. King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, died. Actually, he was killed in a palace coup, and his son Esarhaddon took over. Uh, about that time, Manasseh took it into his head. This is well documented from secular um, uh, writings. Manasseh decided to rebel against Assyria, and uh, he joined with a number of other Near Eastern provinces that were tributary to Assyria, and a king down in Ethiopia by the name of Terhaka, the two of them rebelled against uh, Ezrahaddon. Ezrahaddon marched to the west, decimated the city of Jerusalem. It was one of many destructions of Jerusalem that began about that time. It was about 680 uh, A.D. if you're uh, interested in dates, which incidentally, incidentally, is the traditional date of the death of, he uh, of Isaiah. And it's my belief that when Manasseh killed Isaiah, that was the capper. That was when God began to act against Manasseh. That was the final straw. And uh, Ezra Haddon went on the march about 680 B.C. and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And here's what happened to Manasseh. Verse 11, The Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks bound him with bronze chains, and took him off to Babylon. This is another of those events in, in the Old Testament that is, is remarkably well corroborated in, in secular sources. Ezra Haddon says, is this great prism, I've seen it, it's in the London Museum, Ezra Haddon's description of, of his march to the West, and he said, I... I I rendered impotent 22 kings, and among them was Manasseh of Judah. He's named in that prison. And there's another uh, uh, bas-relief that's there in the London Museum. It's this gigantic figure of Ezra Haddon. And he's holding a rope, and the rope is attached to rings through the noses of two dwarves that are standing by his side. And one is clearly identified as Tirhaka, the king of Ethiopia, and the other has to be Manasseh, these little tiny figures, subject to Ezra Haddon. Holding, he's holding the rope attached to the rings in their, in their, in their noses. This was apparently a, a custom of Assyrian kings to utterly humiliate the uh, kings that they, uh, that they conquer. And this is what happened to Manasseh. He was captured with with hooks, they put a ring in his nose, bound him with bronze chains, put manacles on his hands and feet, and took him off to Babylon. Notice, here's what's missing from Kings. Get this. When he was in distress, the word actually means hemmed in. When there was no place to go. When there was no, no one to whom he could turn but God. In his extremity, in his extremity, he entreated the Lord his God. 
That pronoun is so significant. Luther has pointed out uh, repeatedly in his writings the significance of, of the pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. And here, the Lord His God. He had lost His place of reign and rule and authority, but He had not lost His relationship with God. Somewhere in His youth, He had given His heart to God. And that relationship was still intact, though He had lost mastery in His life. That's what happens to us when we sin. God gives us over to sin. We lose our rule, our right to reign in life. Sin begins to conquer us. We become its slave. And though we may be led into, into terrible moral decay and, and utter degradation, we do not lose our relationship to God. Once we have been joined to Him, we cannot be separated from Him. And He will continue to hound and harass, to even take us into uh, into ruin in order to bring us back to him. That's what he did with Manasseh. And when Manasseh was in extremis, when he had nowhere, no one to whom he could turn, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. In other words, he understood something more of the character of God, his wonderful, incredible, forgiving grace. Now, see, here is a man who ruined a nation. He was held responsible for the moral decline of the nation and its and in, and and its and its captivity in the end. But God gave him a a new and a better start. He gave him a fresh start. Manasseh went back to his throne and he reigned for another 20 years. And uh, there are a number of things that he did. Uh, they're described in verses 14 through 17. After this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entrance of the fish gate. And he encircled the offal with it and made it very high. The uh, Assyrians had breached the walls to the south and the southeast of Jerusalem. He went back and he rebuilt that defensive perimeter. Then he put army commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. These were the cities that had been taken from Hezekiah and taken from uh, and others that had been taken from him. And he put commanders and contingents of the army in these cities out beyond his primary defensive perimeter. He put defenses. Uh, out in the land of, of Judah. And he was removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as all the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside uh, the city. He purged the city of, of idolatry. And he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. There was only a partial restoration of, of the people, but, but Manasseh himself purged his life of evil, and he, he did everything he could to prevent uh, any, any further decline in his life. He tried to set right what he had set wrong. He tried to to provide for the future so that uh, this uh, moral decay would not would not set in a, again. 
And I remember when I first read those words, I thought of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7, where he describes what he calls a godly sorrow. Let, let me read it for you. It's in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 9. Paul says, You were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a worldly sorrow, which is simply the regret of, that we've been caught, that we've been found out, that we're having to suffer as a result of, of our sin. But there is what, what Paul calls a godly sorrow that produces a repentance without regret. It isn't, it isn't deadly. It's life-producing. Paul says, Behold, what, what, earnest, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourself to be pure in this matter. You see, Manasseh not only repented over the past, he, made, he did not make provision for the flesh in the future. And this is Paul's word to us. A, a genuine repentance is a repentance that not only deals with the sin, but it, 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 it does not make provision for the flesh. It does whatever is necessary to clear things up. It goes to people that we've wronged and and sets things sets things right. Uh, it, it keeps us out of situations where we're where we're inclined to fall. Uh, it sets up defensive parameters uh, perimeters so that that we're not inclined to, to engage again in the sin that that we were engaged in before. And God saw Manasseh's heart, and He saw that his repentance was real; it was genuine. It is repentance and contrition that is the key to the heart of God. As John puts it, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I dare say none of you, not one of you, have been guilty of the sins that characterize Manasseh's life. I doubt that any of you have sacrificed your children. I doubt that any of you have been guilty of sins that have ruined a nation. I want you to know that if God could forgive a man like Manasseh and give him back his throne and his place of rule, he can do the same for you and for me. No one has ever out the grace of God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that means is that every day for us is not, not just the first day of the year, but every day for us is a fresh and better start. We can get up every morning. What's past is past. We can forget it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. And we can turn our back on the evil in our past. And we can begin to walk with God and He will restore to us our place of authority in our, within our sphere of, of influence. To me, it's like, uh, it's like playing a, a golf game where nobody keeps score. Uh, God does not keep score, believe me. You start out each hole fresh. The, uh, 
The score on the last hole is uh, erased, and you have a fresh and new start every day. If anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's true, not only of the totality of our life, it's true of every individual day. Those of you who have been in our house uh, know that we have a big picture window in our living room. looks out on Winstead Park. And about 15 years ago, I planted a birch tree uh, just on the other side of that window. So we looked through that birch tree into the park. And I've always loved birch trees. That's why we put it there. It's this beautiful white bark. And there is a poem. When I, whenever I look at that birch tree that I think about, it's by William uh, Stigner. It goes like this. I saw God watch the world last night with his sweet showers on high, and then when morning came, I saw him hanging out to dry. He washed each tiny blade of grass and every trembling tree. He flung his showers against the hill and swept the billowing sea. The white rose is a cleaner white. The red rose is more red since God washed every fragrant face and put them all to bed. There's not a bird, there's not a bee that wings along the way, but is a cleaner bird and bee than it was yesterday. I saw God wash the world last night. Ah, would he would wash me as clean of all my dust and dirt as that old white birch tree. And I, uh, this is expressed as a prayer, and I want to assure you that he answers that prayer. And when we ask him to cleanse us, he does so. Let's pray. Would that you would wash all of us, Lord, of all of our dust and dirt. We look back on 94 and, and uh, see how our, our lives have unraveled at times, how we have uh, lost our way, how we have been guilty of grievous offenses, wretched, ugly, unacceptable things that we've said and done that have wronged others, ruined our reputations, put others... Uh, reputations in jeopardy. And uh, we realize, Lord, that we can do nothing about those past offenses. There's simply no way that we can, can cleanse ourselves of past guilt. But we thank you that you are able to do that, not because you're kind, but because you yourself have borne the penalty for that sin. And you can freely completely forgive. Lord, we thank you for this new beginning, this new year. Uh, it is, in many ways, a fresh and better start for all of us. But we know we will continue to fail. And so we walk in the assurance that every, every day, every hour, every moment can be a fresh start. You have forgiven our sins. We thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.